You know, I was, I was watching the, the, the stage this morning, and it, it looked a little odd to me. Did it look odd to you? Everybody was clustered over here, and there's nobody over here. We've got all of this real estate over here, and there's nobody over It just looked weird, didn't it? It's unbalanced. It's not right. It shouldn't be that way. But there was, there was a hint of something. There's, there's these choir mics here. Now, we don't see what's coming, but the choir mics tell us there might be something more coming. We don't yet see all that will be, and in the midst of not seeing it all, what we do see on the stage looks out of balance. It's not quite right. Yeah, life is like that, isn't it? We don't see it all yet, and so what we do seems out of whack, unbalanced, out of place, not as it's supposed to be. We're going to be in Luke chapter 21 today, where Jesus is giving us more of the picture. He's pointing ahead toward the future. There's a lot in life that is not right yet, is not right now. But once we have all of it, it will be right. Everything then will be in balance. We'll understand the beginning from the end when we see it all. And so he's given his church a glimpse ahead. He's given us already a look at the future all the way into his coming. But he doesn't give us that just so we'll know. It's easy to spend a lot of time in this chapter focusing on the details of the predictions. And there's exciting stuff here. We'll have a little fun with that. But I'll have to leave some of that behind. And I did give you an overview on the back of your notes insert. You have an insert in your bulletin. And on the back of that, I gave kind of an overview of some of the end time stuff that I'm talking about. So you can go back and look at that again later. I see you're reading it already. Not yet. Later, you can read that, okay? Because Jesus didn't tell us just so we know all the fine details of the end times, what we call eschatology. Isn't that a good word? Eschatology. Now you know a new word about end times, too. Not Premillennial and pre-tribulation, all kinds of good words. But he didn't tell us this so that we could know that. He told us this actually for a more important reason that we'll get to at the end of the chapter. So since we can get to that at the end of the chapter, let's, uh, let's uh, just pause and ask the Lord to help us as we go through this. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you, you know all things. You see all things. You notice the little things that we do that seem little to us, and yet they do not escape your attention. Father, thank you that uh, you put these things in the whole perspective of what will be. Lord, would you help us this morning out of your word to put our lives into your whole perspective, to see our lives as part of your plan, not merely our own. Lord, that we might be strengthened by your word to trust you even as that widow, that we might be faithful to you all the way to the end when it seems like we have nothing left knowing that we indeed, in fact, have everything because our Lord is near. Lord, remind us of that this morning. Direct our our hearts, direct our will into yours. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 21. I have a a, a brief outline that covers the the, um, 
largest flow of the chapter. This is called the Olivet Discourse. This is in Jesus' final week. He's there in Jerusalem with his disciples. And uh, the, the, the story begins, well, after, after the episode that we shared with the children about the widow's mite or the widow's coins, those two little copper coins, it, it picks up in verse 5, uh, uh, chapter 21, verse 5. While some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said. You see, this ties in with the widow's might, doesn't it? It's not just that, oh, look, the temple is gorgeous, but the temple was gorgeous with great offerings. Not only had Herod, King Herod, built and was, was continuing to be finished this massive temple, but it was also being finished apparently with big offerings. So I think there was a pillar over here that had a little gold plaque on it that said that this pillar is given from the generosity of so-and-so and so-and-so. And then over here, there's some candlesticks, and they have a little plaque on them. And the plaque says, these candlesticks were generously provided by. And there's all this advertising Maybe, maybe there's not a little gold plaque or a, a bronze plaque, but, but there was, there was the, the known that this was provided, this was built, this was finished with the grand offerings when the Lord himself is commending two little copper coins, which weren't going to make a bit of difference, it seemed, in the temple of Jerusalem, but they made a huge difference to the temple of God, the presence of God, Jesus himself. So the, the disciples are easily impressed with the wrong things. Look at this awesome temple. This place is grand. This is beautiful. We have never seen anything like this. I remember when I was, when I was visiting, well, once in, in downtown Chicago, it hit me again when, I, when we were in downtown Manhattan, and we're going around, and, and the, the big steel and glass buildings don't get me this way, but I see these older buildings that have these huge, massive stones that are set one upon another, and how is it? It's amazing what men can do putting these grand edifices together when they put their minds to it, right? Easily impressed with the accomplishments of humanity. Imagine what it was like there when they're, when they're putting up this Tower of Babel. Look what we can do. We'll build a tower all the way to the heavens. We are too easily impressed with the wrong things. And Jesus instead redirects their attention. He says, as for these things that you see in verse 6, the days will come when there will not be one left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And this is going to happen sooner than, than they might think. By 70 A.D., the temple is going to be destroyed. Rome is going to take the city, and they are going to destroy all of it except the Romans' own fortress, their own garrison there at uh, one place in the city. Everything else is going to be ruined. They asked him, teacher, when will these things be? He's already told them he's, coming to, he's come to Jerusalem to die. He's come to lay down his life. He will be raised from the dead. After that, at some point, he will return and establish his kingdom. But he, they understand that the expectation is a little different than what, what they were hoping for. 
And here now he says, Jerusalem in the meantime is going to be destroyed. This grand temple where all of your hopes are, this grand temple which so easily impresses us, not one stone is going to be left standing upon another. See, so, so they say to him, well, when? When will these things be? What will be the sign of these things that are about to take place? How will we know when this is going to happen and what will tell us that now is the time? And so he begins to describe the bigger picture. He begins in verses 7 all the way to 28. He gives an overview of future events. Our Lord, looking down the corridor of history and thinking about those who follow him in the midst of great opposition and what it's going to be like, he, he paints this picture. He tells them some of what's coming. He does this both in overview and specific. So let me break down the next section, verses 7 to 28, into, looks like I've got about five sections here. First of all, verses 8 and 9, there will be false Christ, there will be rumors of war, but that is not yet the end. See that you're not led astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, I'm the Christ, the time is at hand, don't follow them. When you hear of wars and tumults or uprisings, don't be terrified, for these things must t first take place, but the end will not be at once. The end will not be yet. That's not it. That's going to actually char char characterize. Yeah, that's the word. Characterize the end. That's what it's going to be like. There's going to be a lot of that. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be an uprising here and one over there because humans just don't play nice with others. Our, our, our selfish sinfulness leads to that over and over again. But he said, but the end is not yet. The end is not at once. And then verses 10 and 11, he gives them a more specific overview in broad strokes of what the end will be. Verse 10 and 11, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and various places, famines and pestilence. There will be terrors and great signs in the heavens. That's unique to the end is this great signs in the heavens. I'll talk more about that in just a little bit. But before all this, verse 12, you see the shift again? But before all of that, before that narrowing down into the end, before then, there's going to be more generally, they're going to lay hands on you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to deliver you. This is what you have to look forward to. His own disciples would experience this, and the church has continued to experience it since. It's happening today in certain parts of the world more than ever others, but it's happening today. Verse 12, before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up in the synagogues, prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Wait a minute. Did you follow me there? Some of you will be put to death. But don't worry about it. Because not a hair of your head will perish. How can that be? How can that be? Oh, Easter is coming, isn't it? That's it. 
That's it. His hope is our hope. That even through death, even the martyr's death is not the end, is not perishing. That even though they cut off not your hair but the whole head, even then you are ushered into the presence of God himself. And even that head, even that hair that was lost shall be restored. This is better than any sports channel commercial, huh, guys? You know what it tells me? That in the resurrection, some of us us are going to be restored. That's good news, isn't it? Can you say amen, Bob Reiser? Yeah, that is good news. In the resurrection, we will have hair, a full head of hair. that's That's some practical truth you can walk out of here with, right? It gets even better, trust me. It gets even better than that. Even if we're put to death, not one hair of your head will perish, but by your endurance you will gain your lives. But, verse 20, here's the future. Here's the future pressing into that day again. Uh, and this next section, 20 to 24, this, this has, is one of those prophecies that has a near fulfillment and then a further fulfillment. The near fulfillment of these verses occurred in A.D. 70 when Rome took Jerusalem, when the temple was taken down because the temple was a last fort of resistance of a Jewish uprising. So the temple itself was broken down so that wouldn't happen again. They wouldn't have a, a fort of their own to hide in, which the temple had become. So that happened in A.D. 70, and yet that was not the end. A.D. 70 only only pictured a further end, a further fulfillment that would come much later than that. Let me give you an example of that. One of our favorite prophecies around Christmas time is Isaiah 7.14. The maiden or the virgin shall be with child and will bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And that was a sign, that was an immediate sign to an evil king in Isaiah's day, a man named King Ahaz, who refused to believe God, and God gave him a sign anyway. The sign was to everybody else around that what God said was going to happen was exactly what's going to happen. And it was a near immediate sign. It was an assign, a sign that occurred in the next year or so. This maiden, present at that time, would soon be married and have a child, and the child would be named Emmanuel. And before that child grew to a few years old, the kings that King Ahaz was afraid of would be gone. They would be eliminated. And it happened just that way. So that was the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. So why do we quote it at Christmas time? Because it not only had that immediate fulfillment, it had, a, had, a, had a further and greater fulfillment, which the gospel writers point to. And they refer back to 7.14 that here is the real child. Here is the real promised son born of a real virgin who is a virgin even to the point of the birth. Because it was a miraculous birth because this is the son of God who is truly himself God with us. Who is our deliverer. So just like Isaiah 7, 14 had an immediate and a future, so these verses we read about the destruction of Jerusalem had an immediate, A.D. 70, and a future fulfillment. Okay, don't want to get too tied up in the prophecies. Let me just read through them. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that it's desolation. There's the Daniel, the prophet word, 
like the abomination that makes desolate. When an idol was put in the temple and it desolated, desecrated, it polluted the temple. The time of its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let those who are out of the country enter. Get out of town because this is it. There's going to be, there's going to be a bloodbath. And he's warning those who will hear his word and remember it to get out of town and avoid the bloodbath, if at all possible. And it won't be possible for everybody to escape, as he goes on to describe that. And in that, in that, um, that, that happens in AD 70, and it pictures a time that is coming that we know is the tribulation period. Most of the book of Revelation describes this tribulation period. And it's a bad time. It's a terrible time. There is much chaos and war and pestilence and famine and disease and death. In fact, there are slaughters of people. Millions and millions of people are going to die during that era when basically there is hell on earth. When, when the enemy, Satan, through the person of the Antichrist, somebody who has set himself up as, as an alternative and in opposition to the Lord's Christ is basically trying to rule the earth. Early history had, an, had an, a, 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 a precursor of him and a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Those who Jesus is talking to would have had that historical figure in mind. But we probably the closest thing we've seen is the uprising in Nazi, in, 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 in Nazi Germany when Adolf Hitler was trying to rule the world. And the evil and the atrocities, and especially aimed at the Jewish race, that occurred under his rule and his attempt to actually conquer the whole world. The tribulation is going to be something like that, and yet even on a broader scale, and even more violent, even more deadly. And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all that, they will fall by the, by the edge of the sword, verse 24, they'll be led captive among all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Something else I should throw in here just to give you an overview of that tribulation period. It's going to start off with a false peace. There's going to be a treaty made, an agreement made somehow that seems to allow Israel to rebuild their temple. So there's, again, a temple that can fit into these predictions. There's a temple, and temple worship is restored, but halfway through this period, halfway through these seven years, three and a half years in, the temple is going, sacrifices are being offered, and this leader, this antichrist figure is going to stand up and say, I'm the one to be worshipped. He's going to set his own image in the temple, and I don't want to, we could spend the rest of the morning focusing on that, I don't want to, that's why I give you an overview, and I gave you some notes and references for that, but part of that, and that that second half is really when all hell breaks loose. That second half, that last three and a half years, and it's going to culminate in this. Verse 25. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Stiffen your backs. Raise your heads. Look up because your redemption is drawing near. Remember, remember in verse 11 where it said there would be great signs in the heavens? 
Well, there's one verse in the book of Matthew, Matthew 24. If you turn over to the Gospel of Matthew, it's 24, verse 29. If you Be sure and keep your finger there in Luke if you do turn over. But Matthew 24, 29, I'll read it for you. Immediately after the tribulation, that seven day, at the end of that seven-year period I told you about, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the heavens. This verse that I'm reading in Matthew 24 is Matthew's version of the same instruction, the same, the same teaching on the Mount of Olives that Jesus is giving his disciples. So this is just Matthew's description of, the, of it rather than Luke, and he's more specific in some places. Then, so the, so the, the sun is darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What's that going to look like? Well, I thought about getting dramatic this morning and pulling the shades down ahead of time. And at this point, all the lights in the room would go dark, but it still wouldn't be dark enough. Imagine God himself reaches up. You didn't know this, but there's a little pull chain on the sun. And God himself reaches up, and the sun goes off. And when the sun goes off, there's no light to be reflected from the moon. And the stars have already begun falling from the sky so that it is dark dark, dark. It is so dark you can reach out and touch it. And when it is so dark, there's been all this cataclysmic upheaval upon the earth. And as all of this is happening, and this is the kind of natural disaster that there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, talk about a disaster. We, we, we marshal our resources and try to figure out what happens with a hurricane or, the, or a cyclone like the one that, was j- that, w- that just hit islands in the Pacific. What can we do? How can we restore? You can't stop those winds. You can only try to go in afterwards and do something about it to recover. Well, this is one of those types of disasters that it looks like the end of the entire universe is happening. Certainly in our solar system, the sun itself has gone out. And yet... In the midst of that terror, in the midst of that terror, there is the Son of Man, the Son of God himself, coming on clouds in the heaven, and the whole earth will see it. What's going on here? Well, you remember how out of the Exodus, the Lord led his people in a, in a, in a cl- pillar of cloud by day, was the word, and a pillar of fire by night. And he led them out. It was his own presence leading them out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, off to the wilderness toward Mount Sinai. God himself in his, what, his glorious presence, this shining cloud, it wasn't a dark stormy pillar cloud, it was a shining cloud. It was the cloud of God's glory. God's glorious presence is described a couple of other places, Ezekiel and Isaiah and the prophets. They talk about this bright radiance of God's glory that surrounds him. Our solar system is dark. Our galaxy is dark. The skies have fallen. And yet people on a darkened earth, they can see this glowing, glorious something coming at us. 
And I take it that if the, the approach is going to be such that there's time for the world to turn because Jesus also says in Matthew 24, also he, also he says it here in Luke, that as lightning shines from the east all the way to the west, all across the sky, everybody sees it. Don't look for a little sign. Don't look for a, 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 um, a minor thing. Don't look for something localized. This is going to be big enough that everybody sees it. I take it that as the glory of God travels across the universe, the parade is slow enough that the world has opportunity to rotate around and everybody in every time zone has a glimpse of this approaching glory. The Son of God and the armies of heaven, the Son of God and his saints returning to the earth in a bright cloud of God's glory and the armies of earth massed together for one last battle, first against themselves but then against, against this approaching invasion. Maybe they, maybe they couch it as aliens and yet it is God himself and the person of his Son coming to establish his kingdom. Isn't that exciting? The sun is dark and the moon is dark and the skies fall and then the glory of God rides across the galaxy to planet Earth. He doesn't come meek and mild. He doesn't, he's not born again quietly in a, in a stable or wherever in Bethlehem. No, 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 no. Everyone shall see. Every eye shall behold him in joy or in terror. And then he told him a parable about the fig tree. And there has been a lot of prophetic fun with this one. He told him a parable about the fig tree. It's not about the fig tree. It's about all the trees. As soon as they, they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things ask, taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation, the generation that sees these things beginning to take place, will not pace, take place. Pass, pass away, sorry, until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Those who see the beginnings of it in AD 70 would see it all the way through to, his, to Jerusalem's destruction. In the same way, those who, those who see the beginnings of this desolation and those who see the early parts of the tribulation, no, 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 it won't be long now. It won't be long. What he's telling them, when you see those who see the beginning of it, the end is coming soon. In the meantime, there's persecution. In the meantime, there's martyrs. In the meantime, they're going to throw you in prison. They're going to haul you before magistrates. But in the end, there will be these specific signs. And as those specific signs begin to happen, the time is short. What is he saying? He's saying this in a nutshell. I, I, I want to cast it in terms that also relates to us today if we're not yet in that terrible period. I don't think we are. We're in the period where things are bad and things get worse and things might get a little better and they might get even worse. We're in that time of persecution generally. We're not in that specific last seven years yet. That might start tomorrow. I don't know, but it's not yet. But what he's saying that applies then and now is that when things seem at their worst, when things, in fact, are at their very worst, the best is coming. When things are at their very worst on planet Earth, then just around the corner, just around the clock, in fact, is the best thing that could possibly happen, the visible 
powerful, glorious appearing of the Lord himself. When one of these disciples is standing before a tribunal and is about to lose his life for his testimony to Jesus Christ, that matters. That matters that when things are at their worst, things will very, very soon be at their best. Jesus is not so concerned that we know all the details. What he is concerned about here, what he wraps it up with this parable, the parable is simply to say when you see the signs, you know, when you see the leaves in the tree, you know summer's coming. When you see things getting worse and worse and worse, remember Jesus is coming. That's the point. And so he says, In verse 34, what do we do then? This is going to happen. This is for sure. He will come. Yes, things will be terrible, but he will come. So then, so what? Verse 34, but watch yourselves. Take care for one another. Because of this, and because it will be difficult, because there will be trouble, because there will be persecution, watch yourselves. Not watch yourself. You see that? It's not... It's not singular. It's not individual. It's watch yourselves. Watch out for one another. In the time we have left, I want to unpack those four ways, I think, that he describes how we watch out specifically for one another. First of all, he says, choose better. Watch yourselves lest your, your hearts be weighed down with dissipation or excess or drunkenness. Watch out for yourselves, watch out for one another, that your hearts are not weighed down by dissipation. What is, that's not a word we use. It means partying. It means uninhibited excess. Both of these, whether it's partying, partying and uninhibited, unrestrained excess, or whether it's drunkenness, I would file both of these under the category of self-medicating. I'm empty. I'm not happy. I'm, I, life was supposed to be better than this, and I don't know how it can be, and so I try to find a way to fill that ache. The, this, the compelling hope of Christ's return is far better than self-medication. It's far better than trying to numb that gnawing ache of nothingness. Why does a man go to the bar after a day's work, and instead of going home to his family, he sits in the bar far too long and drinks far too much because life is empty and he wants to be numb because he can't endure more of this not being numb and self-medicating, finding some way to fill up and to find some pleasure even if it's a false one. There's, I, my, my, my soul hungers for something, and so we easily go to the false substitutes. The thing that is happening with a teenager behind the school building with weed or, the, or, or, or somebody drinking way too much is the same reason that we pursue material pleasures, that we pursue um, clothes and comforts and trips and experiences. We're trying to make life somehow meaningful. And our own lives mean something compared to somebody else. The hope of Christ's return. He says, guard your hearts. Don't be weighed down by excess or numbing self-medication. Instead, focus on the hope of his coming. He says, lay aside lesser things. Let me give you an example of this. 
Let's say Julie was visiting our daughter Becky in Springfield. Daniel and I are at home, and it's been one of those weeks, you know, the laundry's strewn all about, the pizza boxes are in the family room, the place is a mess, but Julie's coming. So there's a time there towards the end of the week when we take stock. We look around and we look at the calendar and we, we, we remember the flight timetable and we know that she's going to return. And, and when she returns, she, we wouldn't want her to find it like this. And so we, we take it upon ourselves that things should be different. And we even in that last day or two want to even live a little differently in light of her return. Now, Julie is not Jesus, but she does have a purifying effect on me, just the same. Let me give you another example. You're um, out of high school, maybe finishing college. You're looking toward, oh, no, 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 you're just finishing high school, and you're going to be applying to college. And you didn't realize this was going to happen, but the college you applied to asked if one of their admi- if you would friend one of their admissions counselors on Facebook. They just want to be your friend and get to know you better. And they also want to see what you say and what pictures you've posted on Facebook, right? And you say, oh, my, yeah, I'm going to befriend a person from the admissions office. But I'm also going to go through and I'm going to check out my comments. I'm going to check out my pictures because what may have been part of my careless past is not befitting my promising future. So in light of what is coming in the future, I am going to change some things about the present. I'm going to take hold. I'm going to lay aside those lesser things because of a promising future. He sa- Jesus says, in light of his coming, choose better. In light of his coming, feed your faith. He says in verse, uh, let's see, verse 34, Watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. One of, the, one of my favorite passages that speaks to the cares of this life is, is, is Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, the cares of this life, and they may be important things. They may be important needs that press upon us, and yet the pursuit of trying to meet those needs easily distracts us from even better things. He says, in choosing better, part of choosing better is to feed your faith, to, to be careful about competing priorities, to be careful about all the things that shout at you, you need this, you should have this, you must do that, and this, and that. And all of these things do compete against our schedule and demand our time and attention. I was joking with a mom just, just, she just recently. She was talking about uh, sports activities. She said, yeah, and some of those games are on Sundays. I hate it when you do that. And I said to her, I said, I think you should boycott that. I think you should take a stand. You should boycott them when, they, when they're doing that games on Sunday thing. And I was only half joking because uh, what we don't need to do is picket signs and boycotting on Sunday mornings the games. What we do need to do is to make a choice. Am I going to pursue all of these other activities that scream for my attention or am I going to devote myself first to the worship of God in whatever time or peace or shape that that takes? And I'm not eliminating that to Sunday morning because here you are here, I'd be preaching to the choir, right? But what else crowds in in your day, your time, your attention, your resources that pulls away 
from devotion to God. In, 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 in Philippians chapter 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, because the Lord is at hand in the midst of the trouble. Remember, the best is coming. Rejoice in the Lord. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It doesn't even make sense. I haven't answered the questions yet, and yet there is a peace of God that I don't even understand that will guard my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And then not only that, it doesn't stop there. The passage goes on, not only exercising our faith in prayer, turning in the midst of the need and the demands and the pressures, turning to God instead of how am I going to, scrambling for how am I going to solve this need. It says, and whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. In fact, Paul says, the things that you heard from me, his teaching, and saw me living out, do these things, and the God of all peace will be with you. Feeding your faith. And one of the ways we feed our faith is to take deliberate steps into it. It's not that we are earning our way closer to God, not at all. But when Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God, he's echoing the same thing that John says in his epistle about fellowship with us. We invite you into fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. And we want you to have that. And Jesus says, the way that you abide in me, and without abiding in me, you can't do anything, but the way that you abide in me is to follow what I have said to step in by faith to the things that he has said. And when we take those steps of obedience, when God has showed me something from his word, and that's going to cost me something else, but when I do it, I step into closer fellowship with God. And I can't define for you exactly all the metaphysical mechanics of how that works, but I know that what the hymn writer so long ago said Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, to experience the fullness of life with him, then to trust and obey. It is true. It is true. We, we experience something more of his faithfulness as we step into it by faith. Choose better. Feed your faith. Come when you're called. What do I mean by that? Sound like I'm joking with the pets now. No. He says, be Be careful. Because for some of you, this day will come upon you like a trap. This day will come upon you like a snare. It will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. This day is coming, and some of you will not be ready. Some of you will not be sheltered by faith in Christ. Some of you will not have gone to him for refuge. You will not have believed in Christ as Savior. And this day that is coming is going to be a day of judgment. And he says, when you hear the invitation, don't refuse it. Don't put it off. Don't delay it's, it's a difficult thing for us to grasp that we need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And yet, and yet, Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. The Father will draw you. The Father will call. But when he calls, when he invites, will you answer? You say, no, 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 not now. There will be a better time. There will be another time. There will be some time when I will answer that. But not just now. I've got other things going on. How do you know there will be another time? Imagine you're finishing school, and there's this guy. He's a nice guy. He's sweet, you know, in the way that your mom would think he's a good guy. He's sweet. He asks you out. 
atheist, well, yeah, but he's not that exciting. Right now, he's the kind of guy you'd want to marry, not the kind of guy you'd want to date. You know, right now, I want the kind of guy I want to date and have fun with. And 15 years later, life is a, a train wreck. But you see him on Facebook. He has an average wife. He's an average guy. They got average kids. They just look happy. Do you resent then, 15, 20 years later, that he's not calling you and inviting you out? No. No, that invitation came. And it was real. And yet it's passed. Now, that's a very imperfect illustration. But what I want to press upon you is this. When God invites, don't play with that. When God presses on your soul and says, Jesus died for you, will you come and, sh and, and share his life? Will you experience his forgiveness and, and the embrace of being fully accepted before God because of Jesus and his death for you? Will you just take the gift and will you just receive it? And for those who say, well, not, maybe, maybe there'll be a more convenient, not, not right now. You don't know if there will ever be another time like that. Scripture says, behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Come when you're called. Because of what's coming upon all the earth, when the Lord calls in forgiveness, come. And pray awake. Stay awake by praying awake. Last, the, the, the last word Jesus has for his disciples, because of what's coming, stay awake at all times. How do we do this? By praying that you may have strength to escape all of these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Pray for strength in times of testing. Romans 12, 12 says this, Rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. That patient in tribulation, it's the word to mean abide under. It doesn't mean the pressure's any left. Less, it doesn't mean the tribulation has somehow lifted and gone away and gone somewhere else. The trouble is still there. The tribulation is still there. The pressure is still pressing down. But there are two pillars, one on either side, that keep that weight from crushing you. One of them is hope. Jesus is coming. One of them is prayer. Rejoice in hope. Constant in prayer. Those are the two pieces that allow you to endure under whatever the present press of trouble is. What would Jesus do if he knew he only had a week? If we only had a week left in his life, what would Jesus do? What do you think? Something big? Something grand? Something that would really make a splash? Well, he says, show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign. He says, nah, no sign will be given. Instead, what did he do? Verse 37. Every day he was teaching in the temple. At night he went out and lodged on the Mount of Olives, went camping with his friends. Well, he just didn't stay in Jerusalem, but he did have that inner circle, and they were close in that last week. He's pouring anything he can into a few, and he's teaching in the temple. He's available publicly, but he's continuing about doing the same things and the right things. Early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. What would he do? The little stuff. 
the basic stuff. He'd still take time to notice a woman and her two copper coins. Hebrews 10.24 puts it this way. Let us consider how to stir up one another. How do we watch out, watch out for one another? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some. Don't neglect that. It's important that we gather together, meetings big and smaller, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. When you see the troubles come, when you see more of the signs, when you see more of the, of the press coming upon the world, that's the time to get together. That's not the time to leave off. That's the time to encourage one another and provoke one another to love and good deeds. We will stand as children of the promise. We will, as we sung, fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. You know, there was a song that we sang earlier, but we didn't sing it all. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's right. Yet there was a one song, one verse of that song that we didn't sing. And we're going to sing that here in just a moment. It says, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. The musicians are coming forward as they come forward and will lead us there. And I think the choir is coming as well. As they do, would you, would you permit me to lead us in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for the reminder from your son, his words directly that he is coming. Oh, Lord, help us to continue then. We, we, we pray even this morning. We do what you said. We, we pray, Lord, would you strengthen us? Would you cause us to be strong enough to stand? Lord, we don't know what troubles will come upon us in this week that will test our faith in you. Help us to continue to trust you. Father, we don't know what persecution or opposition to our faith itself might come upon us. Help us to, to stand firm in our faith, graciously extending mercy to others. Father, would you so fix our hope in Jesus' return that we hold everything else, even our own pride and care for ourselves in open hands, trusting it to you. Lord, fix in our eyes that day, that coming day, when he shall 